I just was stopping you because I thought you were going to say something about Moldbug. <laughs> I wasn't. Um, and I am I am going to decline any commentary on that. <laughs> uh, but you're welcome to say whatever you like. Um, do you remember who is? No. Neither do I. But like I got a Facebook message from this person with a picture of me and Moldbug saying like this came across my feed and I thought it was you, but like, is it possible that this is really you? And then I scrolled up in our messages and this was, I guess, one of those friendships with like someone that I never met in person, like don't really know who they are, like guy, I don't know, like 10 years older than me or something, like five to 10 years older than me, like with an NYU degree, but like, I don't know who this person is, but apparently we talked like all the time for like my first year of grad school. And that's an eerie feeling. Like, I kind of want to ask him, like, can you remind me who you are? Yeah, you know, I, I I deleted my Facebook because I felt like I had a lot of those relationships and I couldn't mm-hmm. really remember them. And I, I was, like, upset that I had so many. And, it, like, I didn't say anything fucked in any I, – I neurotically went through and read all of them to make sure I didn't say anything cancelable. Uh, and they're all really mundane, like, oh, I went to the movies today or something. And – I was, just, I don't know. I was like floored. I had all of these friendships. I don't know. But like now it's like, I guess he and I could be real life friends. I mean, according to his Facebook, he lives in Brooklyn. Maybe you should ask him to meet up. Yeah. But I don't know. I feel like that's something that we did like a lot when we were like 16 or like 18, right? Like have like online friendships. So then you like ask to meet them in person and they're always like five feet tall or something and have like a weird voice. <laughs> I mean, like, certainly you still have friends like that, right? Like, you've met your Twitter mutuals, or some oh, of I them did. at least. Yeah, I did. I did meet one of my Twitter mutuals, and that was the that was the first time I'd done that in a really long time. So I deleted my Facebook, um, because I my um background check got flagged for a job because of a joke I'd made when I was twenty one, uh, on like private. I'm pretty sure, but I think Facebook just like. all those like all those categories mean nothing right yeah I mean yeah seems sort of like a lost cause to try to protect from background checks at this point yeah um I did get an angry message from someone I went to law school with saying like are you a right winger now why is that offensive but to be honest that guy might be a right winger it took me the longest time to remember who he was which is like insane since our law school class was like 150 people or something maybe it was like 200 people um but then he reminded me that we had taken um a class on uh freedom of religion and corporate finance together so like anyone that's taking both of those must be right wing right no comment I'm not doing a good job starting this conversation. Um, I mean, what would a good job look like? Jesus, you're making it really, really tough. 
What? What are you talking about? <laughs> I just some don't know. Ca- some sure. some cave shit. What would be like your vision of a good conversation? <laughs> <God, that's- laughs> fucking vomiting now. <laughs> You're. <laughs> I spit my drink out. It was really funny. <laughs> I just start crying hysterically. I mean, that's a good opener, right? <laughs> yeah. I'm just vomiting on on air. Yeah. Crying hysterically. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that sound's gonna get recorded, but I was taking a lot of screenshots of you. Oh no! <laughs> Don't worry, your face is your face is invisible. Um, you're like hunched over with a dish towel across <laughs> your mouth. <laughs> um, yeah, I've had a I've had a slow uh, day. Um, I read I read the story like like right now. I read it a couple minutes ago. I I read it this morning. Um, I had read it in like ninth grade or something, and just yeah, remembered yeah, liking it. <laughs> Yeah, like it like reminded me of like my my relationship with my homecoming date, which was like very weird and failed. Uh, wasn't much Wait. of a relationship at all, but I overreacted. Wait, who was your homecoming? Who was your homecoming date? A Pinecrest kid who you wouldn't have known. Um, who like pity asked me, and then like thought I was too much of a dork at the dance, and kept comparing me to his date from the year prior, who I Holy guess was shit. like better somehow and then he stopped he'd like talked to me every day and then he like stopped talking to me and I was like very depressed about it I felt very rejected um but I mean I didn't do, I didn't do anything I just was like privately sad for until I got over it yeah do you remember how long that was uh I don't know let's see this ha- so I talked to him we never hung out is a weird thing like the first time we hung out was that homecoming dance but he had become like a staple of a staple of my my day because I think he Facebook messaged me if I'm getting the timing right um and let's see we talked for like a month or two homecoming is October school starts in August and then I think I got over it remember my friend from Finland visited and she always would visit me in December so I got over it late December early January yeah um that's still kind of a long time yeah the the story made me think about my like recent crush because I mean it's like a story about crushes I guess yeah yeah so um I guess we can say what it is so the story is an ounce of cure uh by Alice Monroe from her 1968 collection Dance of the Happy Shades um and it did feel like an early Monroe story like, you know what I mean? Like, have you read a lot of her? No, I haven't. I think I've read, like, a bunch of them because my mom likes her. And I kind of like this thing in her later stories, like, um, where she just has this, like, tendency to make, like, huge temporal, like, shifts in this, like, very, very, like, elegant way that, like, is done, you know, really, really well. Like, like she'll jump, like, 50 years in a person's life, like, seamlessly. Um, and it's sort of, like, a stunning thing to behold and like I feel like she just has this way of like making life feel very like uh like 
important I guess by doing that by like connecting like small moments in a person's life with like the reverberations or like the way that sort of pattern or whatever repeats like many years later and this is you know all all that to say that I feel like maybe this should be like a 30 minute episode or something so it's like a relatively short story uh it's what like 20 pages long I think it's even less I think it's like a 14 page yeah yeah very like ninth grade anthology one right because it's like the themes are there like there's like some formal like weirdness a little bit um it's something that kids can relate to um and I guess like looking online a lot of people were like this story's so funny I like laughed out loud during it which I found impossible to relate to Uh, yeah I didn't I didn't think it was it was funny at all I mean I was I felt like embarrassed most of the story yeah I mean there's just like this weird like so the plot is like a girl basically she's a babysitter you know and she has a crush on this guy and he doesn't like her back so she just sort of like randomly gets really drunk at the house of the people she's babysitting for and like has really like embarrassing like humiliating night you know and then by the by the well yeah so they they have like a very short relationship which she Mm -hmm. sort of like dwells in the memory of which is something that uh you know uh, where are you going does too. this. I love, um, I love in literature when people like invoke this, like living in the memory of something sweet, uh, mm-hmm. because I feel like I do that a lot. Yeah. Like it's, it, uh, Monroe and, uh, Joyce Carol Oates both do like a really good job of describing like teenage daydreams. But anyway, so they have a short relationship, which she dwells on a lot. Uh, there's like one very good line that she spends like, uh, 10 times as many hours pining for him. Um, as weeping for him, which I thought was like really, or sorry, as ten times as many hours like uh, pining for him as she did in the relationship itself. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like she, like yeah, it was something I forgot. I, was, I underlined it too. It was something like she spends ten times as much like time thinking about him as she's actually ever spent with him. Yeah, yeah. That's I think that's the line. Um, I like scribbled a note and I couldn't read my own handwriting, so apologies for the misquote. Yeah. Um, but it, I mean, and then also at the end, she sees him. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And she's married. Pretty great. Yeah. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of um, I had like a very like brief relationship with someone in my late teens, um, and he like rejected me in this very awful way, which was um, I, I mean I've told this story before, but you know not to open up that wound again, but I'll say how he, he ended up rejecting me ultimately was he asked me for advice on how to date. Uh, the GameStop cashier at the mall who looked like Megan Fox. Um, And I was, like, kind of, like, a hapless, like, ugly teenager. Um, And then I had, like, a very short period of being, like, good-looking at, like, 20 or something. Anyway, I see him at a party, and, like, suddenly he's, like, very interested in speaking to me, and I just kind of, like, I don't, like, you made me think I was ugly for the rest of my life. Like, (laughs) I can't, I can't, I can't, like, you know, flirt with you at this event years later. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. It's like hard when people that made you feel like awful in your earlier life, like try to be nice to you later or like validate you later. And then you just sort of like hate them forever because of what they did to you. But they're like, yeah, but you're skinny now. Yeah, it's I mean, it's it's hard. I mean, I think also for me, it's like more than the the wound in the past. It's like if I let you in, you know, what's going to happen when you like see me without makeup, right? Like, or if I, <laughs> if I gain two pounds, like, 
You know, I will say that I really liked the ending of this story. And I, I think it, I think it is like an early inkling of like Monroe having this way of like jumping forward in time and showing how things have sort of like subtly changed. Um, so like she sort of, you know, jumps very far, like has this embarrassing night. Her mom sort of makes amends with the neighbor and like the disaster sort of taken care of. And then there's sort of a marching through the rest of high school, you know, like people think she's a joke and everything right um and then it just sort of leaps forward to like he gets married she goes to the the bridal shower because it's a small town and everyone goes to everyone's bridal showers back then which I think she does like well like marking that that's no longer a practice she says something like but then everybody went to everybody else's showers um and then she goes back home for a funeral at some point and it says then I saw him not quite Mr. Darcy, but still very nice looking in those black clothes because he's taken over the family undertaking business. And I saw him looking over at me with an expression as close to a reminiscent smile as the occasion would permit. And I knew that he had been surprised by a memory either of my devotion or my little buried catastrophe. I gave him a gentle, uncomprehending look in return. I'm a grown-up woman now. Let him unbury his own catastrophes. I found the ending uh, perplexing. What did what did you make of it? I honestly I didn't understand that line. I mean, I under I understood up I understood up until let him unbury his own catastrophes. Yeah. I mean, like I I I mean, wh- what did she mean by that? I uh, one thought that occurred to me is sort of like maybe that she doesn't need help anymore. Like she doesn't need him to heal this catastrophe. Um, yeah or maybe another reading would be like that she doesn't want him to like unbury it in the sense of opening the wound because she's a grown-up woman now and she's over it and so it's not his place anymore to like expose this but I think it's really ambiguous and it leaves you I got this overall feeling from this story and I don't know if you got the same one that like I didn't know the narrator very well at all like for having heard about the sort of most like intimate um, kind of like failure of hers and this like, you know, traumatic teenage thing. I found her like really like distanciated, like a really like elegant, like intellectual tone of narration that, you know, is sort of very like adult, I guess, you know, like she says, I'm a grown up woman now. And it's like very much like narrated by a grown up who like has some distance between herself and the events. Um, And it creates this like weird, it's this weird sort of like narration because I feel like, you know, if I were to write a story about like a teenager with, you know, this catastrophic love that drives her. Oh, I think we sort of like not said that she was sort of trying to kill herself. Like it's ambiguous. Like she had earlier sort of like impulsively, you know, taken a bunch of aspirins because of the guy. And then when she gets drunk, like it's not obviously that she's trying to kill herself, but like the way the rumor gets around school is like she tried to kill herself because of Martin Collingwood, you know? Yeah. And like, um, I feel like if I were to try to write that, I would be writing it. And maybe it's because it's like one of the only ways I know how to write is like, you know, in a very sort of like confessional, like style that like aligns like with like the teenager's emotions or whatever, you know, sort of like the way I don't know, like, portrait of the artist as a young man is like, you know, like begins with like a five year old's point of view. Like, I feel like if I were to write about a 15 year old, like I would write from a 15 year old point of view but this is like writing about a 15 year old from a really really like mature point of view and it feels I don't know like not contemporary in that way you know what I mean yeah um 
I mean, it definitely like feels grounded in like the fifties. I you know I was gonna say to your point of like not knowing the narrator very well. I feel like um, like we don't know her in the way that like you know like all we know about her is how she tells the story. And I thought like the character of Kay Stringer, who is the friend who like comes, uh, you know, is, is is a friend of a friend who helps clean clean her up during this like drunken evening she has during babysitting uh, was like a really interesting character because she's like described as like, you know, a wild woman because she, she has had her own sort of escapades, but also very maternal in this way that it feels like is sort of a trope that I don't know if it's a trope in real life, but it's definitely a trope in like literature and film of like the bad girl also being like a deeply maternal character. Uh, this is like such a stupid comparison, but in American Pie, like Natasha Leone's <laughs> character, right? But she's she's like the hypersexual one or like so we think. I think like it, isn't it revealed that she like, she's a virgin or something? But she's like hyper, she's framed as like hypersexual, but she's also the one giving advice and being like kind of a mom to the other characters. And I feel like you see this again and again. Um, and there's something like really interesting about that archetype. Yeah. Um, no, I see what you mean. I think it was also that she's like more mature or like learned. Like she can just sort of like, uh, like knows what to do when a person's drunk. Um, in this way that makes her seem like more of an adult, even though she's like this sort of like catastrophe, like walking catastrophe. You know, with a yeah. bad reputation. I mean, because another like major sort of like framing in the story is that like the reason this happens is because she's like an innocent. Like the story begins with just talking about. Um, the fact that her family, I guess they're not really like temperance people, but like they don't drink. Like the first line is my parents didn't drink. And then she sort of does this like long description of like the fact that her parents, you know, are teetotalers-ish, you know. And then at some point she says something, uh, I underline this wonder where it is, like something like that like innocence, you know, might like be a bad condition to have or like ignorance or like innocence is like not a good way to be. And it seemed like that's such a sort of, you know, an obvious like point to make about like drinking, right? Is like, you know, you should expose your kids to alcohol or whatever. But I wondered what it meant about like love as well. Like, does it mean that like maybe if she had been sort of more of a like slut or something like the K character, then she wouldn't have had such like a catastrophic reaction to the the crush you know what I mean? Like, I wondered sort of what what was the message there? I mean, I think that is the message. It, it sort of reminded me of this, like, weird thing that, like, I we've mentioned on the pod before, and I think about a lot, like, you know, when you're a teenage girl, like, innocence really isn't valued. Uh, but as you get older, as you, you develop into a woman, innocence is valued um, in a lot, for a lot of people, not for everyone, obviously. But there's, like, I remember, like, inflating sort of the experience I had, whether it was like romantically or like with drinking or something to like appear cool. And that was like very common, you know, like everyone would sort of like pretend to have gone like a step further uh, than they actually had. And this is something that you really ascribe to like young men a lot of the time, but you don't really think about it in terms of like young women doing that. And now, you know, the trope is sort of like the opposite happens that women like uh, claim, you know, claim that they have less experience than they do to appear like, you know, like more, more, more vulnerable maybe. Um, and I think, I think that's like a shift in perspective. That's like not fully appreciated. 
Yeah, I know. I know what you mean. Um, although, I mean, there, like to some extent, it's true that girls do get like you know punished though for like the breaking of innocence that they have. Like I know after I first got involved with boys, like I was just sort of like, you know, you know, punished more by my family than by anyone else. Uh, but there were like repercussions for for doing sexual things. And like it was sort of like I had, you know, not had sex, but like rumor, like, you know, immediately the guy sort of like started telling everyone that we had, had sex. Um, so there's some of that, but I feel like it's probably less in like the current generation, like Zoomers, like they seem to have like less shame around sex, like really significantly than we did. I mean, I'm not sure, but like it's hard to imagine like Zoomers, like, you know, slut shaming and stuff the way that it happened for us. Yeah. I mean, maybe in certain communities, but it it also seems like sex is so like neutered for them. Yeah. Um, like it just seems so, I mean, I remember, I mean, this is a really embarrassing story. When I was a freshman in high school, I was very, I don't know what the fuck I was smoking, but I was like very anti-drug, very anti-drinking, very anti-sex and like a very like fire and brimstone kind of way mm -hmm. and I remember being so uh so like scared of sex even I like I it seemed so dangerous and wrong and like taboo in this like just regular sex just making out like nothing even like fancier out there um in in a way that like I can't imagine like my my sister who's much much younger than I am uh like you know feeling at all like I feel like that would be like completely foreign to her. Do you think that was just you though? Um, I mean, I think maybe I was off the deep end for my own reasons, but I think there, I think for like the normal, uh, like 14 year old sex was still kind of like gated in this way that it's not anymore. Yeah, no, it does seem like there's been like a huge change. And I guess like as much as I hate like the internet and stuff, a lot of the changes do kind of seem for the better like you know the way like it's kind of funny when I see like high school girls today be, or like you know college age girls even because they dress like really really slutty these days but like even if they have bad bodies you know or like are chubby and or something like that and it seems like oh that's probably like a good thing that they aren't self-conscious you know I I don't think so to be honest I think there's like something kind of valuable I mean like look I don't think the sort of like pro-anorexia culture of the early 2000s which kind of like followed us into the early 2010s is anything to write home about and I think people who sort of like LARP in support of that are mentally ill um but uh, you know I also think that there's a value to shame and being a little bit more modest than people are like they we've way overcorrected who do you think um LARPs as pro-ana um, you know, I just see people on like TikTok, for example. It's just it's it's like part of the suite of things that people say. Um, <clears throat> sorry, I just received a distracting text message. Oh <laughs> yeah, what did what did the distracting text message say? Uh, it it was very <laughs> vulgar. I don't want to repeat it. Um, no, but I mean, like, it's part of the suite of things that people say on like the you know corners of like Twitter or TikTok to be like purposely provocative. And I you know I, I'm like kind of exhausted by like you know, the number of people who are, like, in their 30s who are sort of, like, LARPing, like, a 4chan-style internet edginess. But I guess it's, like, neither here nor there. Yeah. 
Um, I mean, what parts are – okay, so let's talk about, like, the, the better aspects of the story because I feel like I wasn't, like, blown away by it overall. Uh, I don't know if that's how you felt. I thought, like, the beginning was much stronger than later on. Like, I felt like the parts where she was describing – like the experience of the obsession was much better than the sections that are about like the experience of getting drunk and like the aftermath and stuff like that, where it, to me got very like plotty and sort of like lost interest. Um, so like, I thought it was kind of like narratively interesting, like on, you know, the second page where she's talking about um, the way she had been like in love with this guy ever since he gave her a surprised, appreciative and rather ominously complacent smile in the school assembly for like no apparent reason, you know, and then he like kisses her on the mouth and like she doesn't wash her face for a couple of days, um, you know, to keep the imprint of them. And she says in a parentheses, um, I showed the most painful banality in the conduct of this whole affair, as you will see. You know, but then she like goes on and says something about like, why is it that we try to like um, talk uh, like with like irony about early loves? Like she says, why is it a temptation to refer to this sort of thing lightly, the self-inflicted misery with irony, with amazement, even at finding oneself involved with such preposterous emotions in the unaccountable past, you know? And so she's sort of like speaking with this irony, but like, I don't know, acknowledges the irony or whatever. And I thought that that was really interesting, this idea of like the unaccountable past, like that the emotions you feel in the past, you like ironize about constantly and like minimize them, you know? Um, so I mean, I, I think that's, I think people do that because they are so painful. Like all you can, like these things never get resolved. Like all you can do is, you know, tr like, revisit them or remember them but like there's some I, I also think there's something kind of embarrassing about unrequited love uh that like no matter how much things change like we really just haven't done anything about it like it there's no way it can't be shameful um and it, so what you know what do you do if you feel it it's it's such an overwhelming feeling so you could you know you could deny it and repress it uh you could lean into it which is not good usually or you you know, you could make it a comedy. Right. And most people make it a comedy. Yeah. Like, especially like now, right? It seems like the sort of like woman on Twitter, like woman in comedy pose is like to take no feeling seriously at all. Yeah. And I, I think like, you know, this is especially true of sex because if like we were to really face what we put ourselves through. I mean, it's horrifying. I mean, I mean, this is something I get in trouble for saying, but like, you know, the the thing about like sex positivity is that if you like really took, uh, you know, account of like all the experiences that like the classically like sex positive woman goes through, it's like pretty emotionally taxing. And to like take each and every single one at its full weight is so much that you're only the only option you're left with is to be a nihilist. Yeah, yeah. Um, sorry, I'm like uh, getting a bunch of texts from my coworkers about a call that I'm missing. Um, um, what was I gonna say? Oh, like I guess like the charitable view would be maybe like casual sex or like sex positivity has been endorsed by like the you know. I don't know, randomly, let's say like 10% of women or something who like actually can have like transactional like sex and just like feel good about it. Um, 
it just seems like obvious that like yeah for like the average like actual like normal woman like the bulk of that is just like you know begging for like attention and then like not getting it afterwards and sort of like swallowing your emotions you know yeah I mean like this is so we talk a lot about like the nice guy who blows up your phone what we never seem to acknowledge is the just as common thing of like a woman has a one night stand with the guy that it's a one night stand is sometimes a surprise. Sometimes it's not. And then she just like gets drunk and sends him like a hundred texts. Like I, I definitely did that um, in my late teens. Like my, I've certainly have friends who've done that. And like, if a man did that to a woman, I mean, it would be like at a minimum, it would be a viral tweet, you know, but like, yeah, yeah. It's a cancelable yeah. offense now, though. Like, you know, you're, 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 that's considered assault sort of in polite society. Right. I mean, it's just sort of, it, it's, I don't know. It's, I wonder, I guess we're sort of like socialized into it or whatever, but it's like only would be for me like really, really like rare circumstances, like if I'm being honest, where I could like have sex with a guy. And if he didn't like want to be my boyfriend afterwards, I wouldn't feel terrible. You know, like whether I admit it to myself or not, like, like I really like in every other case have to just like rationalize it to myself and, you know, like look up their work online so I can like make fun of it and, you know, all of these like gruesome activities to to make it make sense. Like to and it's sad, right, because it's like sort of nice the, the way I get it, it's nice to like see someone in the best possible light, which is like what you're doing when you allow yourself to love someone. But like in the you know casual sex world or whatever like if you really did that like you would just like latch on to like everyone you know and they wouldn't latch back I had this thought I had a market explanation for this while I was not in my right mind so I don't know if it'll like sound as surprising now (laughs) but here's my thought here's my thought that like like realistically like okay like men will fuck anything that's like most men will like fuck anyone that's not like really ugly like they're not like filtering for like wife material they're filtering for like not really really ugly or like maybe like not doesn't seem dangerous you know you know but like that's it like for like sex once like that's the bar so like 90% of men will sleep with like you know 90% of women let's say once you know but like the women are kind of like filtering for the husband material they're not filtering for looks they're filtering for husband material so like 90% of the women will have sex with like 20% of the men but like I think this is what like incels and stuff get wrong it's like it's not like a looks question it's like the whole like gestalt of like a person right so then like anyway so then 20% as much sex happens or like you know 22% or whatever as much sex happens as like men would like but what's going on is like in those 22% of sex encounters still only in like I don't know half of them or less would the man like actually be interested in like wifing up the chick so it's like the woman thinks that she's being like really selective you know and she is being selective but like the uh she still isn't getting what she wants. Like, it's like a mismatch. Like, she's selecting for a husband, but there are just, like, so few men in that pool that, like, want husbands. Or, like, there's no guarantee that, like, the man wants a wife. So there's just, like, no guarantee for a woman. Like, we're just, like, you know, selecting for the wrong thing. And does, you know, it's... Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that's, like, a pretty... That's a... That's an accepted 
point of view. I mean, at least in some. No, at least least on right wing Twitter it is. Sure, which is all I know, of course. Um, Just kidding. Uh Well, I'll I'll tell you like what I was arguing against was like this really like weird and sort of like alienating fight that I saw going down at a party between like a kind of like not that attractive man and like a pretty attractive girl where – the girl was like defending like judging people morally based on how they look and saying that it's like pro-social to try to make yourself like look pretty and stuff so like if you're like a six that doesn't take care of yourself you're like a sociopath basically it seemed like insane but one of the things she said was like defending this view was that it was a pro-female view to like value looks more because on dating apps like you know women tend to rate men less attractive than men tend to date like rate like women on looks so she was like so if society devalued looks then like women would be disadvantaged vis-a-vis men and I just like wanted to like I was I wanted to like scream at her I was like so angry like also partly because she was like the best looking person at the table I'm like what the fuck are you doing like you're just like a hot girl at the table screaming at us about how it's pro-social to be hot I mean I think like the rhetoric this is a total other topic but I mean like the rhetoric about hotness is so fucked it's so Um, fucked I mean like first of all let's you know let's be perfectly honest here like uh like barring few exceptions when we say hot we mean skinny Uh, So that's like the first thing I want to like just get out of the road. Like so many people who are viewed as hot are in fact not like not hot. Like if they were like even five pounds heavier, they'd be considered ugly. So it's like my first point. I mean, my second point is this thing that like, you know, I feel like normies are put in this weird position where they reflexively identify as hot, even if they're not. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's like making the definition of like hot more inclusive. I mean, there's, oh God, there's so many things. I don't even know where to start actually. Uh, it, 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 I just hate all of the language around it. I mean, it's also so sad because people stop being hot around like 40. Yeah, I will. Yeah. With I, few I, exceptions. But you know what I mean? It's like these girls that are hot, they're not that are hot on Twitter or whatever. They're not hot. They're just like a, they're 30 or, or younger. That's like all. Yeah, there, it, there's something, like, very sort of, like, like lazy about, like, rejoicing in appearance this way. Um, and, you know, I know that it's, like, the contrarian viewpoint partially to be, like, pro-hotness in this very, like, prescriptive way in certain communities because the mainstream has made hotness so inclusive and, like, all, all it takes to be hot is to identify as hot, which is mm-hmm. obviously wrong. Um, but I think, like, both perspectives are fucked. Like we should just decenter it. I mean, especially outside of the sexual realm. And this doesn't mean like decenter beauty. That's obviously absurd. Like we have like a real dearth of beauty. But like the ugh, 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 that's all I have to say. No, I know what you mean. And it's also like it just like the. I mean, maybe this is so like so boring that it's even boring to like argue against it. But like, um, our society obviously overvalues looks. Like, that's, like, what kind of battle is this to be, like, waging? You know, it's sort of like, you know, Megan Fox saying, like, I'm dressing, you know, the way I want, even though you don't accept it. And it's just, like, her being, like, a stunner in, you know, a slutty dress. It's, like, hot girl, what are you arguing about? Like, obviously, you have your job because you're cute. Like The intellectualized argument is, and, I mean, you see this all the time, is, like, 
our society devalues beauty. True. I mean, look at architecture. Uh, there's, you know, like you walk down the street, there aren't any plants. People don't really go to art museums. The art, the the contemporary art that is very popular often, you know, there's no like craft to it. All true. I agree. Um, movies. I mean, there's just, there's myriad examples of this. Terrible but movies. Does, but that does not mean that physical appearance in, you know, a human woman has been right. actually devalued. Like it's absurd. That's that's you know insane. Like we have like a completely like beauty obsessed like culture. You know, for women and men, as we we should do that episode on anorexia on bodybuilding. But it seems like for both sexes, like looks are like more important than they've ever been. Like totally. You know, Kavi recently got asked to do this sort of like I guess like not podcast, but like to do a blog post. I guess for this like Substack that's like asking for recommendations. So his recommendations were like I don't know like. Andre Tarkovsky and stuff like that, you know? And then he looked at the substack and like everyone was like a female celebrity recommending skincare. And that's like just that. It was it was like, so it's just like, you know, Kodali or whatever. And then it's like Andre Tarkovsky. And then like, you know, I don't know. Yeah. No, like, it's I mean it's it's the obsession with like staying young and 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 skincare. I mean, it, what I think is really funny is like so when people are saying that there's like a dearth of, of beauty and like people are ugly or whatever, they point to two things. They point to Silicon Valley, which mm-hmm. is like overworked engineers, mostly men. I mean, they don't have, first of all, they do care about their appearance once they enter, fr- once they move from founder to venture capitalist, which is, you know, one thing. And then the other example is like obese middle Americans, as though those people don't wish they looked like, you know, an insta thought, right? Like as if yeah. the obese like woman from Kentucky doesn't hate her body and is proud of it. Like the fat positivity stuff is such a cope. And like, you know, I disagree with it because I think that it takes, you know, it takes the lens off like health. I mean, there's, uh, there's tons of bad things about it, but it's, it's a cope even for the people who are supporting it. And like that obese woman from Kentucky that people are like, you know, the eternal obese woman that people are always evoking, like she does not think she's hot. She hates herself and she will die at 35. And that is a tragedy. And you shouldn't be using that as an example to say, oh, there's no beauty in the world. I mean, people are just deluded. I mean, it's just like, the, we're we're trapped into an awful feedback loop of contrarianism that like no one's making any coherent points at all. Yeah, I mean, and of course it's like augmented by um, like how segmented like Twitter is. Like I think like anyone like that doesn't have like a Twitter account that I like made like even mentioned any of these arguments to would be like completely perplexed. Like what? Like like beauty shouldn't be morally salient, like should be morally salient. And it's such like, you know, superficial philosophy. Like during this, like I was like on one level, I was like, I guess these people are just trying to like imitate like a Whit Stillman movie, like on some level. And they're like really young, give them the benefit of the doubt. But then it's just like poking like any one of these terms. Like Twitter is not like a good place for like philosophizing. Like what does it mean to be like morally salient? you know like what characteristics should be morally salient like should anything be like should there be like moral rankings of people like it's just such like one I don't know I feel like I feel like a boomer to saying like it's such like one-liners but under this like guise of like high level intellectualism um by the way I got a message from a number that is in my contacts hey looking good with Curtis how did it go are you dating he's easily the most important living writer I think his work is phenomenal What's the area code? 
561. Who the fuck could it be? Well, I asked who it is and I got an answer. It's Am I remembering who that is correctly? Um, we went to high school together. He was a couple years older than me. We went to high school and then we went to college. And then he went to, got his MFA in fiction. And then he moved back home and I think started working for like his dad's construction company and got really into Trump. We would go to the Ugly Duck together. I mean, maybe we both have to get going. And, you know, I guess I'll end this with the question of the hour, which is, is, uh, it pains me to ask, is, is Moldbug coming on the pod? Um, that's up to you, princess. I think he probably should. I have no reservations with him coming on the pod. Okay, so Moldbug's coming on the pod. Have you, have you met Moldbug? I almost, this is a fun story. Maybe we can end it on this. Um, for my birthday in, a, in 2020, um, I was supposed to take an eight-hour road trip with him and another conservative blogger. And, um, you know, this idea was proposed to me. And I said, I really don't, you know, my birthday comes once a year as it does for everyone. And I would much <laughs> rather spend my, my birthday uh, in San Jose than doing that. And I declined. Okay. Where were you going to go on a road trip to? Reno? Los Angeles. Oh. Okay. Well, I like Moldbug. I, I hope I like him too. Cool. Okay. Ciao, Bella. Bye. Bye.